This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. We're going to just do a real quick review of last week. We didn't finish our, our, uh, our lecture last week, Render Unto Caesar, Civic Responsibility and Civil Disobedience. And if you'll recall, uh, we had talked about some biblical examples of disobedience. Uh, we talked about the Hebrew midwives, Esther, Mordecai, Obadiah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel. We mentioned Peter and Paul, even the, uh, the, uh, the tribulation saints in the book of Re- Revelation. All these are examples the Bible has given of disobedience. Uh, we, uh, we then moved on and we looked at different types of government because we can't just say, well, I'll be obedient under the government that, uh, that, that, uh, that I like. And, and I think that's kind of where Americans, we have been lulled into a sense of, false sense of security where we think that uh, everyone in the world must have it like we have it, or if they don't, well, at least God has blessed me. And that's a very dangerous place to be. Because there are people in this world who are under governments that are not God-honoring, and they have as much as a command to obey God and also to live under the rules of that government. Often I think we feel that when things don't go our way, that uh, we have the right to just disobey. And so I think we have to consider what uh, the Bible says about that, which was what we were getting into as we left off last week. And I mentioned there are three relationships that a person has to their government. Of course, you could be an anarchist. You can believe that the government shouldn't exist, that there's nobody who has the right to tell you what to do. And we even used and we asked the question, is this biblical? Is this from a biblical worldview? Because as we talked about last week, we said, hey, what about the Christian who is led by the Spirit of God? If you walk in the Spirit, you'll not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And the problem we have in our world is because too many people are driven by their flesh. So maybe we, don't, we could be anarchists. Well, I don't think the Bible supports that. Uh, so we moved on to nationalism, which is an undiscriminating devotion to the government. So on one side, you have that you don't think government should exist at all. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you say, well, my government can do no wrong. And that is where we left off. So maybe it'll help. Slide 30. There we go. We're going to look tonight at patriotism. Because our nation has warts. We need to own those warts. And when necessary, we preach against them and we repent from them. So how does the Christian relate to the state? And that's where we are this evening. And we'll finish this up uh, and, and see what kind of time we have left, whether we even want to introduce our next topic or not. So I do believe there's a third way. There's, we've got anarchy, nationalism. I think there's a third way, and it's patriotism. Now, it has been often been said that the naval captain, Stephen Decatur, a hero of the War of 1812, in a toast at a public dinner in New York, he said the following, Our country, in her intercourse with other nations, may she always be right, and always successful, right or wrong. Do you understand what he was saying there? May she always be right, and always successful, right or wrong. However... Decatur's my country right or wrong philosophy, I think, can be dangerous. Some think he was actually misquoted. I do not have an opinion either way. I wasn't there. Uh, But I will say that we cannot just go along with our nation just to get along. Just as the German clergy that we mentioned last week refused to hold their nation accountable, so in America we do have a responsibility to protect our nation against all enemies, Foreign and domestic. What do we mean by that? From the outside and those enemies from the inside. That is why I like what U.S. Senator for Maine, Carl Schurz's amendment to Decatur's toast. 
Schertz said on the floor of the Senate in 1859, following the 4th of July celebrations, he said this, Our country, our country, right or wrong, when right to be kept right, when wrong to be put right. That's true patriotism. It is love of country for what she could be and what she should be. Now, this is the definition of patriotism our founding fathers knew. One of the earliest American definitions of patriotism comes from the year 1726, where the dictionary definition then was, love of one's country, the passion which moves a person to serve his country, either in defending it for, or protecting its rights and maintaining its laws and instructions. Maintaining its laws and its instructions. In the early days of our republic, and before the United States defended its independence, the word patriot actually was pejorative. It was pejorative because the word comes from the Greek patriotes, meaning fatherland. You can see the root in the word patriot is what? Petros, or Patros, Greek for father, or in Latin, what do we got? Do we know the Latin word for pater? Father. It's in the word patriot. In Greek culture, the word patriotes was used to describe barbarians who only had, their only thing in common was the fatherland, the land. There was no polis or city. It was those people out in the sticks who lived on the land. The polis was a symbol of a free state because you were governed. You say, well, that's an oxymoron. You're governed, but you're free. It was where man was able to flourish under government. Governance and common culture. The polis was culture. And the Patriots was the common people. So by, the, so by 1774, the word, it was actually one of derision that the English spoke of those common people across the sea in the colonies who were also factious. They were disturbers of the government. But as is traditional with Americans... Call us names, and we'll, let, we'll make them stick. We'll embrace those names. So, though it had a very negative connotation, it has since come to mean for Americans a sense of endearment for those who love the nation enough to serve it, fight for it, and correct it. And it's because we do look at America not as a city, or even the government. America, what do we say? America, land that I love. It's the people who make up this nation. So if you're willing to serve it, fight for it, and correct it, that's what separates it from nationalism. The willingness to correct it. Because you know what it could be, what it should be. You see, we don't believe the government has this carte blanche right to do anything it pleases. It must be held accountable to the people or the patriotes, the citizens of the fatherland. And I do find this to be a biblically correct position, and I think I'll be able to make that case this evening. First, we see anecdotal examples of characters in the Bible who loved their nation while acknowledging, even correcting its flaws. I think one example of this, and it's actually there's a class if you want to go hear all about it, you could skip out of here for the rest of this and go listen to Pastor Brown talk about Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a phenomenal example of one who wept for his nation. He knew what it was supposed to be, what it could be. He loved it. We would call Jeremiah a patriot. 
Paul is another. He even said he would give up his salvation if it meant Israel would be saved. And remember Peter, who wanted to inaugurate that kingdom back in the garden? I mean, he was ready. He had a sword with him. These are all examples of what I think we would call patriotism now. But secondly, I think those, those, there, there's those stories, there's those antidotes, there's that uh, uh, inductive examples. I think we have a very clear, solid biblical principle that we can apply. And to see this, I'd encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, Peter, he tells us this in verse 17. He says, we are to honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God. What's that next phrase? Honor the king. Paul said something similar when he instructed in verse 7 of Romans 13, Render therefore to all their duties, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. In Proverbs chapter 24, verse 21, Solomon advises his son to fear the Lord and the king. Paul wrote to Timothy, he said this to Timothy, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority. Why? Why does he say this? That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. That's 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. But why should supplication, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for those in authority? The implication is that they are not perfect. There's an implication here in this verse that Paul's telling him, you got to do this, you got to intercede on behalf of them, because they are humans. The success of their governance very much depends on Christians' intercession for them. I don't know if you've watched the display that's going on the last couple days as we confirm a justice. It is a display. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a show. It happens every time we do this. Depending on who the president nominates, or I should say whatever party of the president that nominates, you know, the Republicans, they just don't like him. Or they just love him and cheerlead and the Democrats hate him and vice versa. They just switch. Depending on who their person is. But as we watch that, my question is this. And not just for the senators, but for the representatives, for the president, for the vice president. How often have we intercede on their behalf? Because their governance, their success of their governance, very much depends on Christians in this nation praying for them. Our peace and their success are mutually connected. That's what he says, that we might live a peaceable and quiet life. That is what patriotism is. It is not undiscriminating and blind to our nation's ills, but it is allegiance to her ideals. So this actually brings us into something that I think is vitally important to understand when it comes to a Christian civic responsibility. Allegiance to our nation's ideals, we have to ask the question, are, is our nation's ideals, are they righteous? 
That's a hard question. But it's a fun one to think about, and I'll think I can tell you why. Before I go further, though, in our national anthem, we even say, we sing it if we get to the verse, and conquer we must when our cause, it is just. Do we have just, do we have righteous ideals? So this is where we risk swearing allegiance to wickedness. You know, if I'm a patriot of my nation and I'm supposed to be committed to its ideals, what if its ideals are bad? What if it has wrong ideals? What happens when her ideals are wicked? Should we defend her still? Should, do we rise up against her? This gets us to the meat of our discussion this evening. Now, I want to be very careful here. I am speaking tonight as an American. That's my context. I know no other. I can't pretend to say, well, here's what Canadians really need to do. They need to get one more truck in that convoy. I don't know. I can't speak to that. I can't say even if I were in, the Ru if I were in Russia, here's what I would do. I can't. I can't say if I were in Ukraine, this is what I would do. I can't do that. I can't say that about England. I can't say that. Some of you, I think, may be able to. You actually have a perspective of those nations. I don't. I was born and raised in America, and I have had all expense paid trips to other nations, uh, per courtesy of the government. I have seen other nations. I have enjoyed their, uh, their, their landscape and sand, but I don't understand everything that goes on in other nations. So I'm only speaking from an American perspective. And if we're going to be patriotic as Americans and we want what's best for our nation, we must determine who is in authority and what it means to obey the ordinance of God that's been placed over us. That's the question we have. Who is in authority? And when it says obey the ordinance of God that is placed over you, what does that mean? You have to answer that question. And this is why and what I believe makes the United States unique. And in many ways, it actually is. I get it. It's easier for me in the United States to teach a lesson like this because the way our nation was founded, it makes it more objective for us to give our allegiance to something here. So I just read some verses that talk about praying for the king, honoring the king and obeying the authority over us. And I purposely mentioned Congress, the senators, the representatives, the vice president, and the president. And I talked about how we need to intercede on their behalf. And I did that because I was throwing in something to distract you. Because I'm going to ask this question now. Here's the question. In our constitutional republic, who's our king? If we are to pray for the king, who are we praying for? Now, I could ask you to raise your hand. And I won't treat you like I would have treated my seventh graders. But you say, you don't trust me now after what I said. I could say, you know, and don't raise your hand because, you know, but I could say, okay, how many of you would think it's the president? How many of you would think it's Congress? How many of you would think it's the judiciary? How many of you think it's our governor? You know, who is our king? We're told to pray for the king. Who's our king? Maybe this is a cultural thing, and since we do not have a king, maybe... We can look at this verse in the Bible and say, well, that was, that's old. That's that culture. We don't have a king. There's no one for us to pray to. So we are relieved of this responsibility to pray for a king. Maybe you could look at it that way. You could look at it culturally. Or maybe I go back and say, well, maybe it's our president. The president is king. Well, Thomas Jefferson would not want to have heard you say that. John Adams, he kind of liked having a king, but he said, we're not going to call him a king. 
because they will preside over us, not rule. So is the president king? He's the ruler of our nation, right? Whew, I cringe to even say that. He's not the ruler of our nation. I don't cr cringe because who the president is. I cringe because that's a horrible understanding if you think the president rules over a republic. Because that's the key word. Republic. What did I call our country? A constitutional republic. What does the word republic even mean? You've probably even heard someone say, we must defend the democracy. We're not a democracy. You see, the word republic comes from the Latin res publica. Res meaning the interest, and the publica, where we get public, means people. The interest of the people. The public interest is what republic means. Now, applied to political science, a republic is a form of government in which a representative is elected by the people to govern over them. So you go and you vote, and as you vote, you are asking that person to represent you. There's a philosophical question that I don't know if you've ever voted this way, but here's what you have to ask yourself when you vote. Should you agree with the person you're voting for because they are going to represent you? Or should, should you agree with them, and that's why you're voting for them, or should that person agree with you and represent your interests? Have you ever gone through how you vote? In other words, what I'm saying is, let's change the perspective, not from you as the one voting, but the person who is the representative. If I was re representing this district, do I get elected to go to Congress because they trust me to make wise choices and to represent them? Or do I not have the luxury of my own opinion? I just do what my people tell me to do. That's an interesting question. I don't know what the right or wrong answer is on that because well, I'm not a representative. I've never been faced with having to do that. But that's why when I vote, I vote for someone that I align with. And we are be we're quickly becoming to see in our culture that those alignings are becoming polar opposites. I mean, that it is truly partisan. It's a shame it's that way. I know there's some Christians who say, well, I'm not Democrat or I'm not Republican. I'm independent. I don't think so. I really don't. I mean, I just, I find it hard that you could be so polar, you know, be so uh, uh, bipolar in your voting uh, between one candidate and the other, uh, especially in this area, in our, in our state, our commonwealth, if you will. I think maybe there is a little bit more of a centric view in the flyover states. But that, that's just my opinion. So what makes, though, a constitutional republic, and what makes it a constitutional republic, is when these representatives that we have elected, they have a responsibility to govern. How? They have to govern according to the rules established in the law of the land. And what do we call that in our nation? The Constitution. The Constitution is the law of the land. Perhaps maybe you've even heard it called the supreme law of the land. We even fought a war in the United States over whether or not the supreme law, the Constitution, the federal government had more power or the states had more power. So I ask again, who is the king in our constitutional republic? Maybe to answer this, we should compare republic with the common misconception that I've already mentioned, that we are a democracy. A pure democracy is a form of government in which the leaders, while elected by the people, are not constrained by a constitution as to its actions. So in a democracy, there's no guidance, there's no law of how those representatives need to behave. The democracy, the people just, they could vote to who, who they want. However, however, 
In a republic, elected officials cannot take away or violate certain rights of the people like they could in a democracy. In a democracy, the people voted them in, and they could make laws and do whatever they, however they felt. And that's the danger. And that's even why we have the Federalist Papers that we're talking about. Hey, here's how you keep factions out of our government. Here's how you don't have mob rule. The Constitution will protect us from mob rule. So this answers our question for us. The Constitution is king. It is the supreme law of the land. Now, this is, you might say, that's weird. If I'm to pray for the king, I was thinking a guy with, you know, pointed hat, you know, with the, you know, jewels in it and, uh, you know, a, a robe and a scepter and a person. That's a king. Well, one, let's not be too literal about what he says, pray for the king, because we could then say, well, obviously we're not to pray for queens then. <laughs> Only kings. Queen Elizabeth has had a long run, but we do not need to pray for her if you were a British subject. No, that's, we can't be too, I, don't, I want to be careful that we're not too literal here. Because we're going to see that our supreme law of the land is king. So recall how our Constitution starts. The preamble begins, we, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty, do ourselves to ourselves and our posterity, do, <laughs> do ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. It begins, we, the people. It is the people who determine the laws by which we live. This gives a lot more weight to the oath of office every government official makes. There are variations, but they all include these words. I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same. I do not swear an oath of fidelity to the president. I don't swear it to the governor. Now, I do say I will obey the orders of the president of the United States. I do, and if you're in the National Guard, you do say that you will carry out the orders of the governor. But you don't swear an allegiance to that person. It is the people who determine the laws by which we live. This gives this, this a lot more weight. The president is not king. Congress is not king. The judiciary is not king. Governors are not king. Our founding fathers wanted to balance these powers because they derived their power from the consent of the governed. The people have determined that our Constitution, that written document, is the supreme law. The Constitution is king. It's what rules over us. So do we pray for a document? Well, that seems absurd. No, but we do honor and we do pray for those in authority tasked with executing it. We have three branches of government. We have the legislative, they pass laws under the authority of the Constitution. We should be praying for them that they are faithful to the king. Then we have a president who's the executive branch. He executes the law that the, legislative, that the legislator has passed. And then we have the judiciary who determines whether or not those laws are in line with the Constitution. You say, Tavis, you are living in a dream world. That's not actually how it works. <laughs> You're right. It's messed up. But I'm faithful to the ideal, to the Constitution. And we do resist those who seek to demean it and destroy it. God placed us in this nation at this time under this constitution, and it is our law. And so for someone 
who resists it, who wants to destroy the Constitution, I say, that's the enemy. My oath has said, that's the enemy. Why? Because our king has commanded that we do have, it says in there, the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. That's what our king has told us we have the right to do in the First Amendment to the Constitution. So what do we do when we find that there are enemies of our king? For those of us who have vowed to defend it from foreign and domestic enemies, how do we do that? Here's where I'd like to give some very practical guidelines as we conclude this evening. First, I encourage you to ask yourself four questions to determine if you are fulfilling your civic responsibility. Before you ever resist a law or an ordinance, ask yourself the following. Number one, ask yourself, do I honor God-ordained power? Remember the verse in Timothy, it says, Pray for the king and for all in authority. Oh, man, he caught us. My constitution was the only thing I had to pray for, but all in authority. Remember that the powers that be are ordained of God, and we are to pray not only for the king, but for all those in authority. Additionally, if the constitution is the God-ordained power for Americans, then we must acknowledge that the rights guaranteed in that document are also protecting those with whom we might politically or even theologically disagree with. I had probably, I'll give you a little story here. I had probably one of the most challenging moments in my career just a couple weeks ago. When I had a sailor come to me, and he wasn't just a sailor, he was an E9. And I say that not because, well, he was an E9, but he should have known better. So he comes to me and he says, Chaplain, I need my religion recognized by the United States government. Now, if you were to go to what we have in the Navy, it's a, there's a data system where you fill out what's called a page two. It's all your information of who you are, who's your next of kin. Uh, in case you meet your unfortunate demise, it's where they're gonna con who they're going to contact and take care of, uh, of your, your body and your stuff. Well, in there, you can pull in a drop-down menu your religion. And I'm telling you what, there's a lot of flavors. In fact, Chris and I, we talked about it just a few weeks ago. He says, well, do you put fundamentalist? Because there's fundamentalist as a, as a drop-down. I said, I didn't tell him this, but my thought was not if you, unless you want to be a Muslim. Because uh, <laughs> we don't know what fundamentalist is in there. It just says fundamentalist. I mean, there's a variety of fundamentalists. Then there's Baptists, there's American Baptists, there's Southern Baptists, there's Missionary Baptists, there's Northern wow. Baptists, there's Baptist Churches of America, there's Baptist Churches, there's just Baptist. I mean, it just goes on and on. Now, all of these in the drop-down menu are all approved by the Department of Defense as legitimate denominations, religions, what you have. I mean, and there's everything. I think you could even put in there unknown, you could put in there agnostic, you could put in there uh, uh, prefer not to say, uh, you, could, you could put, there's a variety. But there's one that's not in there. <laughs> and this master chief comes to me and he says, I need you to help me. I want to put in a religious accommodation request to have my religion recognized. Now we're just walking and telling me this and I said, hey, no problem, what do you got? Because I am going to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. And the Constitution says in the First Amendment, Congress will make no law respecting the establishment of religion, nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And my job as a Navy chaplain is to help protect the freedom of all of our naval, Navy sailors and to help them worship God in the manner in which they see fit. You say, why is that your job? Because I swore to protect the Constitution, and the Constitution says that, that they can so I said, yeah, what you got? And he says, the Church of Satan. And I said, are you serious? He says, yes, I'm very serious. Man, talk about a tight spot. Because I, I'm the chaplain. My job 
is not just preach on Sunday. We have a job where we provide service, but we facilitate for others because we protect their constitutional right. He has a constitutional right to be a Satanist. <laughs> I find it funny that he sent up his request. And all I did was I have to do an interview that says whether or not they're sincere. And I said, he appears to be sincere. Uh, and I left it and sent it up. And, and actually, to make a very short, short story long, it was denied. Here's an interesting thing. Did you know a Satanist cannot exist without God? How do we even know, how do we know Satan exists? The Bible tells us. So when I asked him, I said, look, do you believe the Old and New Testament of the Bible? And he says, no. This is what says Satan exists. You would not even know about that if it wasn't for the Bible. It's not like someone just made it up. I said, divine uh, uh, revelation has told you, and you have really gone into worshiping the creature more than the creator. But anyway, that's an interesting place. But my question is, do I honor God-ordained power? The Constitution has said it. And, and I, I love our Constitution. I think we have a great form of governance. But it is not perfect. And I know some of you sit there and say, well, I wish we had a theocracy. Whew, I'm not sure we want to go down that road. Because who's going to make those determinations of what is orthodoxy? Remember, the powers that be are ordained of God, and we are to pray not only for our king, but for all those in authority. Additionally, if the Constitution is the God-ordained power for Americans, then we must acknowledge that the rights guaranteed therein are also protecting those with whom we might disagree with. But if the king says those, they have those rights, then we should protect them as much as we want ours to be protected. Thousands of people have died for our nation who we did not agree with them but yet they laid down their lives. And sometimes I think we get into this very patriotic fervor in our churches, and we say, well, you know, military, we thank you for your service. And uh, you know what? They may be patriotic, but that does not give them a relationship with God. They need the gospel. But do I honor God-ordained power? The next question you should ask yourself is, does my citizenship present a good testimony of my God? Before you ever disobey, ask yourself, does my citizenship present a good testimony of my God? Romans chapter 12, verse 17 through 18 instructs us this way. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. That's the going in. And I know you might sit here and say, well, it's just not possible. I tried. Live peaceably with all men. If resistance is going to draw others from Christ, what does it matter if you gain all your rights but lose the soul of men? Paul said it like this. The things which happened unto me, this is in Philippians, have, unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. So that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord waxing confident by my bonds are much more bold to speak the word without fear. You know where Paul was when he wrote that? He says, I am here tied up between two guys. I'm in prison. And because I'm here and I've lost my rights, it's allowed the gospel to go forward. It was the gospel and not Paul's rights that compelled Paul. And you know who Paul was? A Roman citizen. You say, well, he didn't have, oh, he had rights. This brings me to the third point. Do I honor God-ordained power, but does my citizenship present a good testimony of my God? Here's the third question. Do I advocate for others? Did you know that your rights and my rights are actually not a priority? Everything we have is a gift from God. 
Job said it like this, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Sometimes we get so caught up with our rights that we not only lose our testimony fighting for them, but we lose all objectivity on the purpose of those rights. They're not for us, but for the furtherance of the gospel. This is why I think we are at that time in our country's history where we're on the downward slope because we had for so long rights to preach boldly and freely, and we failed. Now, there were churches who were doing it, but I'm telling you, the wholesale repentance normally does not come in comfort when there's rights, but rather when there's persecution. But the purpose of our rights are for the furtherance of the gospel. Remember what Paul taught the Corinthians. He told them, now, therefore, there is utterly a fault among you because you go to law one with another. Why do you not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves or allow yourselves to be defrauded? Sometimes we simply need to discern which hill is worth dying on. There's wisdom required there. Here, here's, where, here's where there's wisdom if we do not defend our rights, then what rights might be left for my children to enjoy? So there is wisdom. I'm not saying we just roll over and die. Because I want my boys and girls to grow up with freedom. And added to this truth, a violation of your conscience is not a requirement for dis disobedience. Do you hear what I said? The violation of your conscience is not a requirement for civil disobedience. We have been deceived into thinking that if something violates my conscience, then it is worthy of not doing. You say, well, that's a violation of my conscience. We've had these discussions in, 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 the, in the Navy specifically in policy, and that is what rights do people have when it comes to religion? Do you have the right to practice your religion or do you have the right to practice whatever your conscience tells you? And those are the discussions because we do live in a very free society where we say, well, I can do what I want. I have the right to self-autonomy. But what happens if your conscience is so seared that it's not telling you what to do, whether it's right or wrong? That's what we have, right? We have... Really, the idea now where everyone does that which is right in their own eyes. We don't have the right to just live by our conscience. We have to live by the word of God. And that should form our conscience. The reasoning should not be a violation of your conscience, but rather a violation of the word of God. Now, certainly your conscience should be formed by the teachings of the God's word, but do not let your conscience be your guide because it can quickly deceive you. So are you advocating for yourself and your rights or are you advocating for the rights of others? And then the fourth question you need to ask is, have I done everything I can legally do to influence change? Our first inclination should not be to disobey, but rather to understand the law and how to work within it. Those of you, and this is just my perspective, and, and I know many, I don't want to, I'm not saying anybody who's not in the military doesn't understand this. That's not what I'm saying at all. But if you are in the military, you have had to learn to be wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove. Because it's a challenge. But I have found often that there's opportunities to work within the rules. I've told you the stories before of, of people I've had the privilege to counsel where I could have just talked about their sin and just hit them over the head with the Bible and never have a conversation again with them. Or we built a bridge and it led to sharing the gospel. But work within the rules. No citizen should resist a law if they've never voted. You understand what I'm saying? Sometimes we think, oh, I'm going to resist. Did you vote, though? Well, no, I don't believe that works. 
you don't understand a constitutional republic then. Remember, we are a constitutional republic, and as such, we have representatives from the people elected by us to our government. So have you done everything you can do legally to influence change? So once you've asked those four questions, if you can't answer yes, I've done everything I can legally do to influence change. I have advocated for others. I do believe my citizenship is a great testimony of my God. I have honored God-ordained power. If you can answer yes to all those questions, here's the final litmus test to determining how to appropriately exercise civil disobedience. The fundamental question is, that we must ask is, if I do not resist, will I be complicit with evil or be caused to sin? If I don't resist, will I be complicit with evil or be caused to sin? This is the most important and really only important question we can ask. This takes us back to where we began. When Peter and John were told they could not live out their duty to God, they replied, no, we ought to obey God rather than men. When the government asks for you to sin against God, that's when your answer is, I must disobey. The problem is, Often what we are asked to do or not do, or even in, asked to endure, we may disagree with, our, with those things. They may disagree with our preferences, our ideals, even our own political beliefs. But we're actually not being asked to sin. Say, I don't think we should be driving 55. The speed limit really should be 65. It's not your call. You abiding, going 55, isn't going to make you sin, even though every fiber of your being says you should go faster. <laughs> go back to the story of Daniel and see a great illustration of this. When the other Persians were trying to find a way to oust Daniel, here's what the Bible says. They could find none occasion nor fault. For as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. They looked at Daniel, and they tried to get him. They tried to get him to fail. And they looked at him and looked at him, and they said, This guy, he just lives by the law. So what did they do? They passed a law that said he could not pray. And you say, well, that's unfortunate. You know why they did that? They were very clear in their scheme. This is what they said. They said, we're not going to find any occasion against this Daniel, except, and this is what the Bible says, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Could you imagine if that's what the world said about Christians? Hey, we're, they're, gonna, they're a law-abiding citizens. This is what they do. The only way we can get them is if they disobey their God. The only way they were going to get Daniel was to attack his faith. They knew he would draw the line at sinning against his God. That should be the same standard for us. It's not a violation of our standards, not a violation of our conscience, but rather a violation of the law of our God. But sometimes going along to get along does result in sin. What then? Well, as a believer, we need to be prepared to disobey but here's what's important to remember. Not only should you be prepared to disobey, you need to be prepared to reap the consequences for that disobedience. The Bible is full of examples, many that we shared at the beginning who willingly disobeyed, and guess what they also did? They willingly took the consequences. We can return to Daniel to see that. When Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house, his windows being opened in his chamber towards Jerusalem. He kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. This is the implication of civil disobedience. It is willfully disobeying. It is consciously defying a law or rule. Daniel knew exactly what he was doing. He said, it says when he knew the writing was signed. It wasn't as if Daniel went up there and prayed three times a day like he had always done and then was like, whoa, I didn't know you had passed a law. 
I wouldn't have done it then. He knew exactly the law, and he defied it. It was willful disobedience. That's what civil disobedience is. It is willfully disobeying. It is consciously defying a law or rule. Disobedience, though, has consequences. That's why it's called civil, peaceful disobedience. You realize you're going against something. It's going to have consequences. Sure, we can seek mercy, and we can pray God will plead our cause. Like I remember, remember the, the, the boys in the, in, the, uh, in the fiery furnace? They said... Uh, God will spare us, yeah, but if he doesn't. They, I don't think they were very confident. Remember what Esther said? She was going to prepare to go, and she said, and if I perish, I perish. Paul, when he went to Jerusalem, he said, I can only hope they arrest me and send me to Rome. In fact, he made an appeal to go see Caesar. And I think it was Agrippa or Festus. One of them said, hey, hey. I don't see any fault in you. But you've already appealed to Caesar. I'm going to have to send you because you made that choice. You have to be ready to reap the consequences. And as Christians, I think often we get into this idea where we say, oh, I don't deserve this. I'm being persecuted. You're not being persecuted. You're being punished for your disobedience to the law. I think as believers, we need to do better. We live in a world that is waxing worse and worse, but we must be wise and serp as serpents and harmless as doves. We need to render under, unto Caesar the things that are Caesar, and that includes the honor that our government deserves. The Bible tells us one of the things that are Caesar's is our loyalty and obedience. But there might come a time when we need, do need to disobey and we need to be ready to reap the consequences of that disobedience. But how will we know? How will we know when and how to do that? We need to be informed. This brings me to the topic for next week. I'm adding the topic, again, that we wasn't in our original syllabus, on social media and the theological ramifications of social media on Christians. That's going to be the topic for next week. Because, face it or not, admit it or not, that's where we're going for our news. And so we have to be informed. And sometimes we might think, oh, this is worth disobeying. When you might have gotten it from a bad source. So we'll talk about that. And what is the theological ramifications of that? Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God, or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.